0: Okay, good morning, good morning. And thank you, thank you for your lovely music. What a, what a privilege it is to get to come here and speak after you've prepared our hearts with worship. Um, I, before I get started, I want to give a big shout out to Susie, Megan, and Amory, who kicked off our fifth year of Abide by sharing their testimonies and sharing their hearts. I'm so thankful, so thankful for your willingness to be, trans- yes. For, to be transparent and share your hearts, um, I know that it blessed I know that it blessed the women, so thank you. We'll call on you again. <laughs> say no. um, uh, I know we've already prayed, but let's, uh, let's pray again. <clears throat> father, God. You are a perfect God. You are perfect in every way, and you are a good, good father. I thank you for this time that we've spent in worship. I pray now that you'll help us to understand your word and hear from you as we uh, study the scriptures together. Amen. In June of 2015, Abby Bechtel was shopping at a Target store in Green, Ohio, when she noticed a sign above an aisle that had two labels. One said building sets, the other said girls' building sets. She tweeted a picture of the sign with the caption, Don't do this, Target. Her tweet went viral, receiving over 3,000 retweets and favorites, and the retail giant took notice. By August, Target announced they would be moving away from gender-based signs, and they posted this on their website. We heard you, and we agree. Right now, our teams are working across the store to identify areas where we can phase out gender-based signage to help strike a better balance. Signs will no longer feature suggestions for boys or girls, just kids. In the toy aisle, we will also remove reference to gender, including the use of pink, blue, yellow, or a green paper on the back walls of our shelves. Selfridges, the famous British department store, has developed a new line of clothing they're calling agender. On the website, they define it as without a gender, genderless. Moving between genders or with a fluctuating gender identity. You can go to the website and watch a video where you will see a group of gender neutral people kind of dancing around and moving around with their new, new clothing line. And in the background, there's a song that whispers these words. And she is he, and he is me, and she is me, and he is free, and so is she, and so are we. The Australian government now offers three options for passports to accommodate gender-diverse applicants, M for male, F for female, or X for indeterminate-slash-intersex-slash-unspecified. Two years ago... I shared with you about the Massachusetts law that was affecting their public school system that allowed transgender students to use bathrooms matching their gender identity. What I gave as an extreme example two years is now in this city. In fact on May 13th of this year the Obama administration issued guidance directing all public schools to allow transgender students to use bathrooms matching their gender identity. Now that letter does not carry the full force of the law, yet it sends a message, fall in line or face losing federal funding. Once again, we are facing the question, does gender matter? Does it matter that there are three options on a passport instead of two? Does it matter that there's just one unisex aisle in the kids' department instead of two? Does it matter that you teach your daughters to be feminine and you teach your sons to be something different? Does it matter if you treat your husbands like men? Does it matter if you dress your children agender? In the scheme of Christianity, what difference does any of this make? How important should it be to you? Is this a mountain to die on? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Titus chapter 2? Titus Titus chapter 2. This is going to be the passage that we'll be using for the entire course. Titus chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. having nothing evil to say about us. Okay, two years ago. Two years ago, we did the book True Woman 101 by our authors, our authors, Nancy Lee DeMoss and Mary Cassian. Now, in that course, if you were here, I highly recommend it. If you were here, you might remember that we focused on the Genesis account and we looked at uh, that to discover our original design for womanhood. And we also talked about how the fall affected that. Now, this semester, we are going to study part two. And we're going to go to the New Testament to look at the elements of redeemed womanhood. So this is uh, True Woman 201. Now, this Titus passage, it's not exhaustive, but it is going to give us a portrait of what true New Testament womanhood looks like. The authors called it basic Christian womanhood curriculum. And they break it down in this book to 10 essential design elements. We will be discussing eight of them over the next few months. Now, before we start and look at this week's element, I want us to go back and get some background on the book of Titus from which this main passage is pulled from because it's actually going to help us understand the elements. So we want to put the book of Titus in context. So if you would go back and look at Titus chapter 1 with me. Titus chapter 1... This chapter is going to tell us who wrote the book. That was Paul, the apostle. And he's also going to tell us um, that he's writing to. in verse four. And then in verse five, we're going to um, get an understanding of why he's writing the book. All right. So look with me. Chapter one, verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Okay, Titus, he's the recipient of this letter. By the way, he is a Gentile. He was a Gentile. He was Greek. He was a partner. He had been a partner and an associate of Paul's. He's mentioned several times throughout the New Testament. He was likely saved during Paul from, as a part of uh, Paul's ministry. He was probably young. And then we learn... That Paul has left this young minister in Crete. And verse 5 tells us, so that he might put what remained in order. He's talking about the church. He's to help put what remains of the church. He's to get it in order and to appoint elders. Now, where Paul's left him is significant. He says he's left him in Crete. Now, that's a big deal because Crete was famous for all the wrong reasons. And um, I'm going to show you where we see that, in addition to history, that is. Look down at verse 12. Verse 12, chapter 1. One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Okay, rather than call the Cretans liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, Paul quotes a famous Cretan who had called them Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He quotes a poem from the li- he, he quotes a line from the poem and says, This is true. Okay, this, this is a good description of the people from Crete. We know that Cretans had a reputation for being devious. They were they had a reputation for being liars. In fact, the word Cretanize means to play the liar, to be a liar. If you called somebody a Cretan, You were calling him a liar. You were calling him a cheater. You were calling him somebody that was dishonest. Okay, next, they were also referred to as evil beasts. It says, it's been said, they acted like animals. They were vicious. They were ruled by their passions and their instincts. Okay, they were stubborn and insubordinate. Next, they were also called lazy gluttons. Okay, that word there means slow bellies. And the idea is that they were overindulged, that they were entitled that they didn't work, they were greedy, they were self-indulgent, all while being lying evil beasts, okay? Now Crete was an island, and the people on that island became known as pirates because it's easier to just go out and steal from somebody than to do hard work and and make a living that way. Um, So this was the culture in which young Pastor Titus has been left behind in order to set the church in order. And when Paul writes this, he knows what the culture is like. He knows what the culture is like there, but he also knows how the culture works. He knows that the culture has a way of creeping into the church. He knows that the culture has a way of creeping into Christian homes. And so Paul understands that. He understands the dilemma. Which is, which is quite simply, how do you impact the culture in which you live? How do you impact the culture in which you've been left without being influenced by it? Francis Schaeffer, he was a, a theologian and a Presbyterian pastor. He said, tell me what the world is saying today. Is that better? Tell me what the world is saying today and i Let me get fixed here. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian and Presbyterian pastor, said this. He said, "Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years." How do we not become that? How do we have an impact on the culture in which we live without becoming it? Well, Paul is going to write about that in the book of Titus, and he's going to give Titus some instruction about that. And it's going to basically be, you get the church in order. Titus, teach the church how to be the church and and put the gospel on display. Okay, now that's the big picture. What specifically was he to do? Well, we, st- we just read he was to appoint elders in every city. He was to put godly men in positions of authority. That was one thing. Now turn back to Titus chapter two, where we just read. Titus chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is another way to prepare. Titus was to teach and train the church family in sound doctrine. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, let's, let's start by defining what we mean by doctrine. And um, this is number one on your handouts. And if you don't have a handout, we, we ran out. Does anybody need a handout? Raise your hand. I have, I have extras here, I have. Anybody need one? We good? Okay. Number one on your handout, doctrine simply means teachings. It is a set of beliefs. It is a set of beliefs and everybody's got one. Now in this case, Paul didn't want the believers in Crete going to the culture for theirs. Let me ask you, where are you going for your doctrine What's forming your belief system? What's forming the way you think? Facebook, some blog, Instagram? Are any of those creeping in to your homes? The authors pointed out that every time you watch a movie or you listen to music or you read an article, you are breathing in doctrine. Right number two, the doctrine you believe determines the way you live. The doctrine you believe determines the way you live. Now that's old news. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know already. I just needed to put it on there because it leads to our third point. Number three, because doctrine determines behavior, our, our doctrine must be sound, sound. And that word sound, it means healthy free from contamination, accurate, whole. Okay, we need teaching that makes sick people well. That's what sound doctrine does. Now, the words sound and doctrine, those are repeated words throughout the book of Titus. Because Titus, because Paul understands something. Paul wants Titus to get the church to be in a healthy, sound state. And he knows if he is to do that, then the people are going to have to have sound thinking, healthy thinking. If they're to impact their culture and resist the pull of it, then they're going to need sound thinking. Okay, now I want you to notice what he does next in chapter two. He starts to give instruction to the older men and then he turns to the older women, and then he goes to the younger women, then he goes to the younger men. He begins to make a distinction in his congregation between the men and the women. His teaching gets gender-specific. It's as if he's saying to Titus, okay, uh, Titus, when it comes to certain things, there's going to be a boy's aisle and a girl's aisle. His instruction is gender-specific with two, count them, two distinct genders, not three like the Australian passport, and not one like the island Target. Okay, now why does he do that? Why, why does he do that? When it comes to our Christianity, don't we all need to be developing the same Christ-like qualities? Don't we all need to be sober-minded and self-controlled and dignified? Yes. Yes, we do. But Paul understands something, and we see this all throughout his writings. Here's our next point, number four. The glory of God is at stake in gender roles. The glory of God is at stake in gender roles. Now, this, too, is review. If you were here for Womanhood 101... We talked about this extensively. We talked about how the glory of God exists in the masculinity of men, and it exists in the femininity of women. And together, they work together to put the glory of God on display. That is why this is a mountain to die on. Okay? Now, why else does he give gender-specific instruction? Here's the next point, and this was from our book. It's kind of a tongue twister. Number five. Paul's lists in Titus counteract our sex-specific sin tendencies and point us back to our divine design. Paul knows that both genders need sound doctrine. He also knows that men and women are different. He also knows that our sin tendencies can be different. And so the way we apply sound doctrine can be different And so there are specific applications of sound doctrine that are directed to women. And here's our next point. Number six, the word of God provides a plumb line for our womanhood. The the homework talked about this. There is a right way and there is a wrong way for us to think and behave as women. And God's word works as our plumb line. Back when my kids were little, my husband decided that he wanted to buy some old houses and fix them up and rent them out. So we became landlords. And because um, wallpapering was just all the rage back then, and it was also a very inexpensive way to cover flaws. So I became an expert in wallpapering. And thankfully I had a, a father that taught me how to do it. And my success was in, he taught me how to use my bubble level and my straight edge. I didn't put up a single piece of paper where I did not have, they were always in reach, the bubble level and the, and the, and the straight edge. I didn't put up a single piece of paper where I, did, where I wasn't moving and shifting that paper so that it was in alignment with that bubble level. All right now, ladies, it is the same way with our biblic- if we are to think biblically and soundly about our womanhood. Every thought, every emotion, every belief—we have got to be continually lining that up to the plumb line of God's word. Now, I can tell you from experience, when you are trying to put up wallpaper in a very old house, things uh, lining things up with the plumb line is can can be very crazy. You know, uh, things get crooked. It takes time. It takes effort, it slows you down when you're using your bubble level. There are gonna be times where things, they get you're putting paper up and it's crooked and it's lumpy and there's usually kids running around wanting dinner or something. <laughs> and yet, I knew that I knew that I knew that if I was going to wallpaper, that I needed to keep the lines plumb. I needed to use that bubble level. Otherwise, it was going to be a disaster of a project and be basically a waste of my time and money. Now, it's going to be the same thing with a biblical plumb line. Yes, it's going to slow you down. And yes, it will be work. And yes, you may have little children interrupting you all the time that you're trying to do it. You know that you know that you know that you need to use God's word. If we are to think soundly, if we're to have a healthy, healthy mind, then we've got to use and take the time to use the word of God as our plumb line. Here's number seven on your paper. There's a right way and a wrong way for us to think and behave as women, and the word of God helps us discern the difference. There's our word, our first element. Titus was to teach both genders what accords with sound doctrine. He was to teach both genders to be discerning. Let's talk about what we mean by that. And I want to give you a definition. I have this on your paper. Discernment is the skill of understanding and applying the word of God with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Okay, the word accords, that's in the Greek, is a word that means fitting. It means suitable. It means proper. And when we're talking about discernment, we're talking about the way we sift through various options and identify the ones that are proper. The ones that fit. The ones that are suitable with sound doctrine. Here's our next point. Number eight. Discernment is when we determine which choices are the most fitting to honor God. All right. Let's say you and your girlfriend, you're out shopping, and you see a shirt that you really like, but you can't afford it. And so you say something like this, Oh, I I can't afford that, but I really like it. And your girlfriend whispers to you, You should get it. Just stick it in your diaper bag. Okay, now, is that a moment for discernment? Is that a moment for you to sift through options? <laughs> okay, no, no. That's not really. That's not really what we're talking about here. That's, that would be stealing, okay? And stealing is uh, it's a very black and white decision. It doesn't really require any sifting on your part. What it requires is immediate obedience, so you're going to immediately obey. There's nothing for you to distinguish, nothing for you to separate. All right, let's imagine that you and a friend, you're hanging out at a neighborhood pool. And a handsome uh, young man comes by, and he begins to chat and t- talk with the, the, the two of you. And when he leaves, your girlfriend says, there is so much tension between you two. You could cut it with a knife. Oh. Why don't you just go do it and get it over with? Is that a moment for discernment? Well, if it's the same girlfriend that told you to (laughs) shoplift, there's probably some discernment needed in that relationship. But what about the situation of cheating with your husband? Is that a moment for discernment? Are there any options to weigh or think through on that one? no, no, the Bible's very clear. No adultery, flee youthful lust, run for your life. There's just, guard your heart. Take precautions uh, immediately. Okay, now what if you're with a friend and you remember a juicy piece of information and you're trying to determine whether or not to share that? Is that a moment for discernment? Well, if it's slanderous, there's no there's only one option, and that is don't repeat it, okay? Slander is sin. Now, you may, what you may find yourself having to do is, you know, think about what you were going to say and then bring it up as next to the word of God to determine if what you were going to say is slanderous. So perhaps in that way, um, uh, there, there might be discernment there. But generally speaking, when we are talking about discernment, we are referring to the many decisions in life that are not black and white. That are, they, in fact, they may be completely neutral. We're talking about the decisions that are not specifically explained in the scriptures. Let me give you an example. You have a child that's been invited to spend the night with a classmate. Do you let him go? You have a son who wants his own phone. Maybe your daughter wants to be homeschooled. What? Um, let's say that you're asked to teach two different Sunday school classes. Or maybe you're trying to decide, should we save up our money and use it on a family vacation? Or should we use it for house repairs? Maybe you're trying to decide, should I go back to work? Should I go back to school? Should I be on Facebook? Should I be on Instagram? Should I go to this concert? Should I serve or or support this ministry. You will literally have thousands of decisions that you will make over the course of your lifetime that are not specifically addressed and spelled out in Scripture. So here's our next point. Number nine, discernment has to do with the wrestling of how to apply Bible precepts to your life. Now, some of you may be thinking, why do I need to use scripture to make decisions like these? Why do I need to use scriptures to make decisions about my family vacation or my house repairs? They're not even spiritual matters. Why do I need to do that? Well, that's a good question. And here's our next point, and it's from the book. Number 10, every believer has the responsibility to discern how to best please the Lord. If you are a believer, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to make all of your decisions in such a way that they are fitting, that they are proper, that they are in accord with honoring God. Tim Challies was quoted in the book, he put it this way, it is the duty of every Christian to think biblically about all areas of life so that they might act biblically in all areas of life as believers we have the responsibility to bring honor to god in all we do we have the responsibility to live worshipful lives and since doctrine affects behavior we need to discern biblically now that's the who and what about discernment let's talk about how Let's say a person wanted to become more discerning. How would they go about something like that? Well, I want you to go back and look at the way we define discernment. We said it was the skill of understanding and applying the word of God with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Okay, the dictionary, it tells us that to discern is to separate, distinguish and separate. Okay, so it's when we distinguish and separate between two things, okay? Now, we see the concept of this all throughout Scripture. So when we're talking about spiritual discernment, we're going to use God's Word. That's going to be our standard. That's going to be our plumb line. And we're going to use it to distinguish and separate. We're going to distinguish and separate the healthy from the unhealthy, the sound from the unsound, okay? Now, Some of the decisions you make are black and white. They're already separated. They're already distinguishable, but some are not. And so discerning is going to involve distinguishing and separating. Now, I want you to keep your finger in Titus. I want to show you real quick something in 2 Peter. So if you would turn with me to 2 Peter. It's a few books after Titus. Peter writes the book 2 Peter knowing that his death is imminent. He knows he's about to die. He knows what he writes is the last message he will give to his readers, the church. And he has a concern that is very similar to what we see of Paul's in the book of Titus. He wants believers to know truth and to remember truth. All right, now, starting in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. All right, Peter is writing to the church, and he's warning them about the rise of false teachers in the church, not the culture. See, it's nothing surprising when there are false teachers that arise in the culture, but it's a major issue when it's happening within the church. Okay, now he says, I want you to notice what he says in verse 1. He says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They secretly bring them in error, false teaching, even the culture. They creep secretly into the church and into your homes. Now, how does something like that happen? How does something enter secretly? Usually by attaching itself to something that's true so that you have a mixture, okay? There's something truthful about it. You see, if it were blatantly false, if it were black and white, you would would immediately be able to recognize it. But it's not, there's a mixture. There's something, it contains something truthful. There's something partially true. And so you know what that means? It means that you've got to be able to distinguish and separate. Now, look at verse 2 from the, from the Peter passage. It says, many will follow. Many from within the church will follow the destructive heresies, the false teaching. Now, ask yourself why. Why does that happen? Why did they follow destructive heresy? Well, well, for one reason, they lack discernment. They lack discernment. They don't know how to distinguish and separate. They don't know how to use the word of God to help them distinguish and separate. They don't want to take the time. They don't want to take the time to learn the word of God so that they're able to distinguish and separate and use the word of God as their plumb line. They may be able to tell the difference between something that's black and white, something that's already distinguishable, but if something's slightly off, they can't do it. Now, how do you develop discernment? Every lesson that you ever learn about discernment is going to include the example of the Secret Service and how they are taught to recognize a true bill and thus able to recognize the counterfeits and the false. During my newlywed years I spent my time working at a bank and I started as a teller and this was back in the olden days before the use of debit cards uh, had come on the scene and so uh, everybody was either paying with cash or checks and so you would have banks come in with bags of money and they would come up to the teller and it would be our job to get it organized and to get it counted by hand we didn't have the little counters like they do today so we'd have to count that and every time we would account uh, uh, st- uh, like wraps of 50 we'd have to wrap it and we'd have to initial it and put our initials on it and so that way if on down the road if it was discovered that a bill was was counterfeit they would be able to come back and say hey this got by you your initials are on here and you didn't want that of course so um one of the things that you're taught early on is you're trained, what does a real bill look like? And so you're taught to look at all the little pieces that are on it. You look at it up close. You hold it back at a nice distance. You, uh, l- you feel it. You get thoroughly acquainted with the bill, with the true bill. Okay, it's, and, and you know how this uh, comparison goes. It, when it comes to the word of God, we have got to be thoroughly acquainted with it. We need to look at it up close. We need to know the details. We need to know the big picture. We need to know the stories. We need to know the lists. We need to know what it tastes like. Okay, we, we must be thoroughly acquainted with the real thing. Number 11, here's our next point. The Holy Spirit will help you apply these core truths to your specific life situation. Listen to what Jerry Bridges writes. We cannot effectively pursue holiness without the word of God stored up in our minds where it can be used by the Holy Spirit to transform us. This is review two. We've talked about this. God has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. We're to take his word and we're to read it and we're to meditate on it. We're to memorize it. We're to store it up so that then the Holy Spirit can come alongside that and use it to transform us, to guide us, to direct us. We need the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We live in what is being called, and this is official, the age of information. No other generation has access to information like you. You deal with an overload of information every single day. And you know what that means? That means that misinformation and misleading information, your, your exposure to that is just <coughs> compounded. You have a need for discernment unlike anything your grandmother experienced. Tim Challies, who wrote a book on the topic of discernment, our book referenced it. He teaches that discernment is not inherent like breathing or chewing, but it's a skill. He says, no one is ever born with the full measure of discernment or is born with all they need. It is a skill. Like playing an instrument, it must be practiced and improved. Turn with me to one last verse. verse. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. 514. It was in your book. It was in your homework. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I have a son-in-law that is an accomplished pianist. The man can sit down in front of a keyboard and just bring it to life. It's, It's almost as if the keys are just a natural extension of his hands he's very comfortable in front of a piano and um i i especially not just like to listen to him play i like to watch him play because he's very passionate and and you can tell he delights in playing his indeed delights in playing the piano now i have no doubt that he was born with some good music genes but he tells you or he tells that he started to learn uh, the piano as a child he was five years old when he started to play and he had a mother that taught him the discipline of practice of constant practice so um, when the other kids were off goofing off and playing uh, she would set the egg timer and he had to sit and practice his scales or his uh, or his memory recital pieces or whatever, and he would tell you that as a child, there were times that he didn't want to practice. He didn't want to play. He wanted to go, he wanted to be off playing. He didn't want to have to sit at the piano and practice. So his mother made him a proposition. She said, okay, if you can find some adult that is glad they quit, then you can quit. And so... uh, he never found one, <laughs> not for lack of trying, from what I from what I understand. But um, <laughs> he never found one, and and he will tell you that somewhere along the way he came to love playing. Ladies, we need to have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Discernment is going to come and be developed by constant practice. If we're to to know the Word of God, if we're to be able to use the Word of God as a plumb line and use it to discern so that it is almost uh, a second nature to us, okay? then we're going to need constant practice. The Holy Spirit coming together with constant practice. If we're to learn to love the Word of God, Okay, that's going to come. Holy Spirit, constant practice. Those things are going to work together. And listen, there are going to be times where you don't want to play, where that you'd rather be out with the other kids playing, where you don't want to do your Bible scales or your Bible drills, where you'd rather be out shopping or decorating or watching TV. But you see, if we're to be mature, godly women, if we're to be mature, true, redeemed women, then we need to be discerning and that will be developed with practice. Here's our last point. Number 12, is that what we are? There are no shortcuts or substitutes for constant practice when it comes to developing spiritual discernment. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we know we need this. We know that there are so many other things that distract us and pull. Father, we know the culture is busy at work trying to creep into our homes. And and Father, we just pray that you will help us to be women that will develop discernment, that you will help us to be women that will learn to love your word, that we'll be disciplined to spend time in it and then use it as the plumb line for our lives. And Father, all so that we can bring glory to the name of Jesus and adorn the gospel. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.